Welcome to the Mavericks and Misfits podcast, where not quite fitting into the religious status quo is a good thing. Slick church trends deceive us. Denominational traditions can blind us. But truth from the heart of God always transforms us. And now, here's our host, a self-proclaimed ministry maverick and church misfit, Jeff Lyle. So if you ask most Christians if they want to see true revival, uh, their instinctual knee-jerk answer is going to be, yes, I want to see revival in my lifetime. And of course, I think that's the right answer, and it's the right answer because One, it's biblically prophesied that at the end of the age there will be an even greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that that we will see an uptick dramatically in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, and that is going to be uh, manifest in the context of great spiritual warfare as we approach the very end of the age, we will see the Antichrist, uh, the beast, the false prophet, and all of those that align with the hellish agenda coming against the church and against Israel. So we know that the context for the end of the age is one of apocalypse. It is going to be a cataclysmic uh, warfare between those that are uh, the children of God and those that are not. And so before all of that occurs, though, um, we, many of us, uh, countless Christians, are trusting, believing, and pressing into uh, the possibility of experiencing an awakening and a revival like the world has never seen prior to the return of Jesus. And so as a believer, as a Jesus follower, yeah, I want to see revival. And um, when when we hear that statement, though, I'm not real sure that we all agree on what that's going to look like. Because when I think of revival, and if I think of it superficially, if I just kind of get kind of flickers in my mind about what revival might be, I'm thinking of mass salvations. I'm thinking of of large amounts of people repenting and coming to Jesus Christ by faith and trusting in him as Savior. Um, I do believe that'll be part of revival. I'm also uh, seeing mass healings. I want to see people... Um, healed of affliction, physical affliction, deliverances from demonic strongholds where the power of hell is broken completely off of lives. And much like that demonized man in the tombs of Gadara uh, in the Gospels, that those that were previously insane and previously um, in bipolar or, or in the strongholds of mental oppression and emotional, um, you know, torment will be sitting at the feet of Jesus and, and learning from him. And so I'm thinking of those kind of things. I'm thinking of the spread of the gospel into places where um, there are massive religious strongholds, like in the areas that of the world that are dominated by Islam. Uh, when I think of global revival, I'm not thinking of, or just the concept of revival, I'm not thinking of you know great meetings on Sunday where we really got our worship vibe on. Uh, friends, that is about as shallow as it can be. Uh, I want to have good Sundays and good times when we gather together, but I actually think the revival that I'm looking for may happen in the absence of us even being allowed to gather. I think persecution is part of the coming revival. I think that persecution will spawn the revival. It will fuel the revival, and it's going to so um, thrust us out of our comfort zones when persecution hits the church in America that um, we're we're not going to have anything to lean upon anymore. And so when I'm asking, do you really want revival? That's what I'm envisioning. Do you want the context that is set up for revival, which is trouble, which is persecution, which is warfare? 
because revival is not going to just happen in a vacuum. There's going to have to be an external catalyst that really deepens the hunger for the church, the bride of Christ to call out for revival. And I believe personally that that's going to be partly, if not the major component of it is going to be when trouble and persecution and oppression hits the church in America and in the West. And so, yes, Lord, send revival. We want revival, but Lord, please don't send it if we can't steward it well. You heard me right. Part of our prayer needs to be, Lord, don't send revival to an unprepared church. Don't send revival to a church that is not broken. Don't send revival to a church that might parade the elements of revival but without stewarding the holiness that must accompany revival. And so I want to bring you a couple of talks about um, this issue of revival and what's going to be required. Mavericks and Misfits is a podcast that is set up to kind of get us to think about things in a way that maybe you're not going to hear in a stereotypical um, status quo denominational approach to the kingdom. It is really to get us to think biblically and to think according to what the spirit is saying in our generation. Yes, through the word of God, I'm a big word guy, but also what do we do with the word? What do we do with the written word? Is there rhema within the logos? Is there a right now word from the Lord that is contained within the eternally written word of the Lord. And so I really want to talk to you about it today. And, and I'm going to kind of broach this topic with um, a really big issue that I think we have to come to terms with in the church. And I want to preface what I'm about to talk about by saying this is not political. This has nothing to do with American politics. This has everything to do with the heart of God and the very character of God and how that heart is imparted to those of us that have accepted his son as the Lord over our lives. I make that distinction because when we come to Jesus Christ, we don't just get um, a punched ticket to heaven and then we live kind of according to our own dictates until we die and then we enter into heaven, which that ticket has, has secured for us. No, friends, to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ is to come under the yoke of his lordship. And that means that as he thinks differently than we do in the natural, he operates differently than we do in the natural. He, he says things that are different than what you might hear in, from natural sources. That means we come into alignment with his heart. And therefore, his words become our words. His thoughts become our thoughts. His heart is imparted to us so that we think and feel and live as Jesus thinks, feels, and lives. Because, again, he is alive right now. He is seated upon a throne in heaven in that glorified body from which he ascended from planet Earth. And he's coming back in that same body. And so my king is alive. And therefore, I want to live in his power. I want to live in, in, in a way that manifests his heart to my generation. And so one of the things that I think that the church needs to um, come to grips with is this issue of the sanctity of life. Um, unfortunately for us in America, and especially in a political season, in an election year, um, the issue of the sanctity of life, the right to life, um, or known by the probably more political term, the issue of abortion, is um, one, sadly, I mean, just in complete, I believe, utter blindness to the heart of God. The people that call themselves Christians have differing opinions on this issue of abortion. 
And I'll just be bold with you. I, I don't think it's unclear at all in Scripture where the heart of God is on this. And because this has no longer been defined by the church according to the Word of God, this issue of the sanctity of life or the issue of abortion, it, the church lost the, the lead in the discussion many, many years ago. And so what happens now is abortion and the sanctity of life is now a political discussion. It is a political issue. It is no longer between um, the idea of whether or not this is right or wrong or if this is in alignment with the heart of God or not in alignment with the heart of God. The issue is now a Republican versus a Democrat issue. The issue is now a male versus female issue. The issue is now a liberal versus a conservative issue. And we have lost the narrative in the church. And so today's episode is going to talk about revival and the sanctity of life. Can we expect to have church? I'm talking to Christians here. Can we expect to really be entrusted with revival when we are so compromised as, as believers, as the big C church, we're compromised on this issue of the sanctity of life. And so what am I doing today? Well, on this episode of Mavericks and Misfits, I'm going to talk to you about the revival and sanctity of life, but I'm going to just use the word of God. And I will bring some statistics into it, but I, I just want you to think. I want you to think biblically. I, I want you to jettison your Democrat or your Republican politics. That is not going to factor in here. I don't, can I say it boldly? I don't give a rip how you vote in, in, in this context. That This is not about uh, how we vote in, in any election. This is really coming to terms as people who are under the lordship of Jesus this is us saying, what does Jesus think about abortion? What does God the Father think about abortion? How is his heart moved in this issue of the sanctity of life? And am I, as one of his children, am I representing accurately the heart of the Father on this issue? And what I want us to do is I want us to be big boys and big girls. And I don't want us to say, yeah, but what about this? And then we start naming all of this other stuff from the political arena. Because, I mean, I think we can all say this, that there is clearly um, a division politically, that Republicans tend to lean towards uh, the sanctity of life and Democrats tend to lean towards freedom of choice, which would be pro-abortion. And so I'm going to ask you to take off your political T-shirt. Take off your MAGA hat, take off your, your, um, you know, your, your, your donkey shirt, your Democrat shirt, and, and just let's put on the garments of Jesus for a moment. And let's just ask ourselves, what's the heart of the Father on this thing? So let me give you a couple of verses that I think um, you know, are important when we're, when we're talking about this. Um, I'm going to give you a verse from Leviticus 18. There's so many places I could go, but let me give you just this verse from Leviticus 18. This is from God and it's given in the law. And in verse 21 of Leviticus 18, this is what God says. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. Now, that's a little bit of an obscure verse, and just very quickly, because I don't want to get bogged down into like a, a boring Bible study on this, but notice very quickly, we're looking for the heart of God on this, and written within the ancient Hebrew law 
was this prohibition, God looking forward to Israel moving into the promised land. He says, in the promised land, you're going to find some people that worship a false god named Molech. And part of the false worship of this false god Molech is that they offer their infants and their small children as sacrifices on the altar, the burning, flaming, hot, physical altar uh, in front of the, the statue of Molech. And there are all, uh, there's drawings and pictures that you can find today that tend to um, depict what this looked like. And Molech was often worshipped by a, 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 an idol fashioned out of precious metals or silver. Or, and, and, and his hands would be turned up. Molech, the false god's hands, would be turned up. And they would be like a cradle. And underneath the turned up hands on the statue would be a fire and it would heat the hands of the statue and the worshipers of Molech to appease his wrath or to earn his favor would toss their children into that flame and they'd burn their children alive. I mean, it's barbaric. It's, it's nearly unmentionable, but that's what happens. And what God told his people, his covenant people, Israel, he said, don't ever do that. That's not me. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. You will profane my name if you sacrifice your children. So right away, going back thousands of years, we know that the heart of God, and remember, he is the Lord. He does not change. So he's not changed his mind on this. He's not adapted. He's not downgraded his standards on this thing. He says, don't kill your children. Don't in your most... In, um, intense act of even worship. And in this case, it would be worshiping a false God. But he says, is, and when people did that, you know they had to believe in what they're doing. They're tossing their baby and sacrificing it. And he says, in your most deepest convictions, don't allow yourself ever to sacrifice your children. And then you come to the place in King Josiah's life. And unfortunately, Israel did not obey the command that, that God gave in the book of Leviticus. So you move centuries forward and Israel had adopted the practices of the pagans. They were sacrificing their children. It's unbelievable to Chemosh the god, the false god, and uh, to Molech and to Baal. They were sacrificing their children. These are God's covenant people, people who had the promises of God, and yet they had entered into a practice of sacrificing their children just like God had forbade them to do. They had rebelled. They had ignored, and judgment was coming. And so God raises up this godly king named Josiah, and when Josiah becomes king, he starts banning, making it illegal, and ridding the land of this practice of child sacrifice. And it says in 2 Kings 23, if you're interested in finding that verse and that passage, it says that Josiah, Josiah the king, defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And so Josiah sees the practice and he raises up his voice and he uses his authority and he reorients the people's practices back to the heart of God. And he says, no, we will not be a people that sacrifice our sons and daughters to the false gods of a culture. And so we see in the word of God that there's clear precedent that the heart of God hates this. There, it's, it's not vague it's, it's not, well, what about, it's, it's so unilaterally clear where God the Father's heart is on this thing. And if we, listen, we don't even have to go to Leviticus or 2 Kings. You've got Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not commit murder. We all learned it in the King James. Thou shalt not kill. And literally, it means you shall not commit murder. 
And friends, as much as the, the debate rages in America, reasonable people understand that to exterminate life in the womb is committing murder. It is a human life. The culture may not tell you that, but I'm about to show you in the word of God very clearly that life in the womb is ordained by God and it is given with purpose. And for any of us to presume to have the authority to exterminate a life that God gives, then we have to come to terms with the fact that we are acting in opposition to the heart of God. While the church is crying out for revival, God is saying, yes, I will send revival, but before I send revival, I'm going to require repentance. And I believe that this blight of abortion, not in the culture, I don't expect the culture to be sanctified. I'm talking about in the church. The church hasn't made up her mind about this. Now, maybe you have, but I'm saying if you go across America, you're going to find incredibly differing opinions on this issue of abortion. And it's very sad because there is no lack of clarity in the scriptures. So let's go a little bit further in in this talk. I, want to, I just want to substantiate a couple of things. Listen, children are God's gift. Um, God doesn't always approve of the way that a child is conceived. A lot of babies are conceived through sexual sin or sins of other types. Um, but children themselves, the conception is never an accident. There are no accidental children. There may be unplanned, but there are no accidental children because every conception is God-ordained. Every single life conceived in the womb is superintended by God himself. Um, you've got Psalm 127 in verse number three. It says, behold, children are a gift of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. And how blessed is the one whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. That's, that's a poetic Psalm 127. Look at this. And what, what the word says is children are God's gift to us. And the fruit of the womb, a child in the womb, is, is a gift. It's a reward that God hands to parent, parents like um, a, a general would handle, hand arrows into the hand of a warrior. Um, I think if you look through Scripture, you're going to find very clearly, and, and again, this is Bible-based. If you don't have an appetite for Scripture, you may be um, listening to the wrong podcast because I'm a Bible guy. I'm a, I'm a spirit guy. I'm a Holy Spirit guy. But I'm also a Bible guy, and I don't think those things are in opposition to each other. We need to be both. And so when I'm giving you the word, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit's going to take the word and start transforming and molding your mind as he molds my mind to be conformed to the mind of Christ. And what, what I see is that in Scripture, God's in control of every conception. Um, if you look in Scripture and you look at the births of and the conceptions of Isaac and Samuel, and Samson in the Old Testament, you find that it's very clear that God ordained their conception. He is seen in scripture as opening the womb. He is giving conception to those who physically were um, not able to conceive on their own. So God does some, something supernatural in the case of Isaac and Samuel and Samson, and these babies are conceived. And then you've got John the Baptist in the New Testament. It's very clear that God did a miracle work in the womb of Elizabeth and John the Baptist was conceived. And if you want to take it a step further, just look at the son of man, Jesus Christ. And, and in scripture, it's very clear that God superintended the conception of Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
And so all throughout Scripture, God is shown to be the one who is in absolute control of who conceives. The Lord opens and the Lord shuts the womb. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 66, in verse number 9, God asks a question. He says, shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb? And what is he saying there? God's saying, when I give a life in the womb, it's my desire to fully bring forth that life. And it's an amazing thing to me that we can, we can take, it's audacious that we take um, the presumptuous route and we say, oh, wow, this baby's been conceived, but it's up to me whether or not I want this baby to make it into the world. When God says, shall I not bring to the point of birth and not bring the baby forth? Shall I cause to bring forth? Shall I fail to bring forth what I conceive? So what about, what about these infants in the womb? These ones that in our culture are being murdered and they're being exterminated. They're being radically removed in barbaric and painful processes that are coming under the cloak of um, you know, personal choice and you know, just a medical um, procedure. That's not the way God sees it at all. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 1, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. What does that tell me? Well, God had a purpose for Jeremiah before there was a Jeremiah. The way it looks is this, is that every human spirit, every human being, if we can say it that way, is an idea that originated in the heart of the infinite God. And God takes that desire, that thought, that intention, and he wraps it in human DNA, and he causes that DNA to be conceived in the womb of a woman. But before any of that happens, God says, I knew who you were. Before any of that happens, he said, I set you apart. I appointed you, in Jeremiah's case, as a prophet to the nations. That's very important. It means this, that every human life is attached to a divine purpose. That they're literally, if I can say it this way, there was a dream in the heart of God that he wrapped a human being around. And so when we exterminate a human being, we're literally trying to exalt ourselves to, to exterminate the purpose of God. You fight the will of God when you say yes to exterminate a life. Um, Isaiah said this, Isaiah in chapter 49 said, listen to me, hear this. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. Again, it's addressing the fact that purpose is attached to life in the womb. We see that in the life of Jesus in the Christmas story. You remember Luke chapter one, um, Jesus said uh, of Jesus, it was said, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. I mean, you talk about purpose attached to a life. I mean, I don't want to, you know, for us to just say, well, that's just Jesus. No, my, my friends, please remember, he's the son of God, but he was also the son of man. And we've already seen it in Isaiah and Jeremiah's life that God has purpose for every life he ordains to be conceived in the womb. So you've got Jeremiah, you've got Isaiah, you've got Luke, you've got Paul. Paul wrote to the church of Galatia in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 
This is what Paul said about his own life. And he got this, by the way, by revelation. He didn't just, you know, assume this, or maybe this is a nice thought. This was revelation that was given to the apostle Paul. He says, God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son in me so that there's purpose so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And, and what we see there is Paul says, yeah, now that I'm walking in the spirit, now through revelation, I see that the purpose of God was to set me apart from my mother's womb. And then again, you know, I'll just say this. I'm trying to add layers to this so that we, it's very difficult for us to ignore the word of God on this thing. John the Baptist, again, that says of him before he was con conceived, he will be great. This is um, Luke chapter one, verses 15 and 16. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fer other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Just stop right there. That God ordained that John the Baptist in the womb, in utero, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say that he'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Why am I, why am I hammering this just over and over again? Because I want us to recognize that when we exterminate a life in the womb, we are beating against an expression of the divine will of the Father. That we're, it's bad enough to take a physical life, but if we can also see the spiritual component, that it is an act of rebellion against the sovereign will of God. And friends, when we do that on the level that the United States of America has done it, it can invite nothing but the eventual wrath of God. God cannot let this go unpunished. And so... When we think of this issue, we've got to come out of just the physical aspect of it. And we, we need to think deeply on the covenantal aspect of it as, as the people of God. We've got to realize that this isn't an issue of convenience or an issue of personal choice or freedom. This is an issue of the lordship of Jesus Christ, which he died in order to secure that we might come under the protective banner of that lordship. And yet many people that have, have said that they've come to Christ and or have entered into that relationship where he is Lord of all, they don't want to hear his, his will on this, this topic of abortion and the sanctity of life. They want revival, but they don't want to repent. And I'm not so sure that we have any legitimate expectation for wide scale revival when the church is so deeply compromised on this issue of abortion. Um, just, just very clearly, I think one of the most famous passages of scripture is from Psalm 139. And I'm just going to, you know, assume some of y'all have never heard this, but listen to the words of Psalm 139, specifically verses 13 through 16. David's writing, he says, you f he's, he's, he's writing this Psalm to God. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Wow. So David gets up a glimpse into how God works. God, before David had lived out any of his days, all of his days had already been prepared by the Lord. And that David says, I was intricately woven by you. I was being made in secret from, uh, by you. My frame was not hidden from you. And he says, you made me in a 
fearfully, wonderfully way you knit me together in my mother's womb. Wow. Um, that takes any kind of casual approach off the table. That when we see that the conception of a child is an intimate thing between uh, what God does in the body of that woman. And again, a lot of times a baby is conceived, it's, it's not a legitimate act that brought about that conception. A lot of babies are conceived outside of the marriage bed. A lot of babies have been conceived through um, rape and incest, and those are tragic, awful things. But the Lord oversaw the baby's formation. That's what we need to get. The baby is not a mistake. The baby is not a crime. The baby is not a sin. And the baby is never accidental because the baby is knit together, intricately woven in the secret place by God himself who makes all things good in his time. And so as we think about children in the womb, it'd be good for us to remember that in the Bible, we, we find out that children have personalities in the womb. They're portrayed in scripture by with, with personalities. You've got Jacob and Esau inside of Rebecca's womb. Do you remember what they were doing in her womb? They were fighting. They, they, were, they started their tug of war, so to speak, while they were still in the womb of Rebecca. They were jostling with each other. That's what the Bible says. That's not me. That's the Bible. And then you've got John the Baptist leaping for joy in the womb of Elizabeth when Mary, pregnant Mary, walked into the room with Jesus in her womb and John's in Elizabeth's womb, and John, filled with the Spirit in Elizabeth's womb, rejoices at the presence of Jesus in Mary's womb. That is unbelievable. I mean, it's so good. It's hard to believe, but it's true. And so, I mean, in the womb, your, your children, children already have personalities and emotions. Now, let me finish up our time by saying this. It's no mystery to me why Satan hates babies. It's no mystery to me why Satan the one who is the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. It's no mystery to me why he, why he would um, have such um, a movement in any nation. It's global, but here in America, I'm keeping my thoughts on America. It's, it's no mystery why the, since in the 47 years since Roe v. Wade, why, why this, this movement to slay children upon the altar of convenience has taken such a, a, a deep anchoring in our culture. Let me give you some statistics that I think are helpful. Um, there, there are a lot of different reasons why a woman may choose to have an abortion. Um, here's some statistics that 26% of abortions are had by women who just want to postpone childbearing. So 26% of abortions are done because of convenience. Now, 21% can't, don't feel like they can afford to raise the child. So economics, 21% is economics. That's why people have abortions. 14% is relationships. The, the woman doesn't have a partner that wants to raise the child, so the decision is made to kill the child. 12% of abortions are by young women who are too young and they have parents that object to the pregnancy. 11% of abortions are done from women that feel like a child will disrupt their education or their career. And then you got 8% that simply don't want to have another baby. And so sometimes abortions are had because of convenience. Sometimes it's economics. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes the child's too young, so that could be called immaturity. Um, sometimes it's ambition. They just don't want to disrupt their career or their education. It's just ambition. 
And then you've got the indifference. Some just don't want a baby. And so what's the easiest thing to do? You pay a few hundred dollars and you, you have an abortion and you heal up and you go about your life. That's, that's what's going on in our country. Um, listen, it's about 1.3 million abortions a year in America. It translates to about 3,600 a day and about 150 babies an hour in the United States of America that are being killed. And 47% of abortions in America are performed on women who have already had at least one previous abortion. And, you know, a lot of times people raise the flag and they want to make the abortion issue about what about rape? What about incest? And my goodness, those are tragic. Those are awful. Never would I think about minimizing the devastation that occurs through rape or incest. But when it comes to babies that are aborted because of this, um, it's about 1% for rape and incest and only about 1% for what's called fetal abnormalities, abnormalities in the fetus, in the baby. And only 3% of abortions are performed because the mother's health is in jeopardy. So a lot of uh, proponents of freedom of choice and abortion, um, they'll say, well, if you take it away, what about these vast amounts of people that are going to suffer because of this pregnancy? Well, again, not minimizing those things because those are awful things, rape and incest and fetal abnormalities and when a mother's health is in jeopardy, but it's a fraction of the actual abortions that are taking place. And what happens is um, the proponents of abortion want to inflate that idea like it's the main reason why people have abortions. That's simply not true. I've already tell you, told you why most abortions take place. It's convenience or economics or relationships or immaturity or ambition or indifference. Those are the real reasons. Very few abortions take place from rape or incest or fetal abnormalities or the woman's health. Um, about 51% of unmarried women who become pregnant elect to have an abortion. That's about half, and that's appalling. Um, of course, Planned Parenthood is the factory, the abortion factory um, industry here in the United States. Uh, it's very inconvenient for pro-abortion um, individuals that Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, was also uh, one who promoted eugenics and was an avowed racist who hated the black race and wanted them exterminated. That's an incredibly inconvenient um, truth that um, people just have to minimize or ignore. I don't even know that it's debated anymore. It's so predominant in Margaret Sanger's writings that she felt like that the white race was, you know, the race and that the superior race anyway, and that the black race was inferior and all other races were. And so um, part of the agenda of Planned Parenthood and its origin was to exterminate what she considered people of less value. I mean, you need to hear that. That's, that's huge, um, especially for my African-American brothers and sisters who, who oftentimes have been brought up in a, in a mindset where abortion is acceptable. And again, the majority of African-Americans in America tend to lean left politically. And part of the left political movement is this issue of abortion. So a lot of African-American Christians don't realize that Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger actually uh, had a, as part of her agenda to exterminate black people. I mean, it's incredible to me. She's the one that said the most merciful thing that a family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. That came out of her mouth. That's so demonic. She also said this, our failure to segregate morons who are increasing and multiplying 
a dead weight of human waste, an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. Do you hear that? It's demonic. So much for the Imago Dei, so much for the image of God. Margaret Sanger says there's certain types of people, and she's speaking of minorities. She's saying they're morons who are increasing and multiplying, a dead weight of human race, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. So she takes it upon herself to um, come up with an agenda to exterminate as many of them as possible. Margaret Sanger also said the marriage bed is the most degenerative influence in the social order and our objective is unlimited sexual gratification without the burden of unwanted children. So Margaret Sanger was a pioneer in her day and she said, let's have as much sex as we want and if a child's conceived, we can kill it. Um, Sanger, and forgive me for you know just taking a moment with her, but this is, this is hugely important because Planned Parenthood facilitates the majority of abortions in America. And Margaret Sanger enlisted the help of an African-American doctor, Dr. Gamble, to, to help be kind of the face on her agenda. She wanted a, an African-American face to go into African-American communities to uh, kind of um, win the minds and hearts of African-Americans. And so she urged Dr. Gamble to actually enlist the help of spiritual leaders in the black community to justify their deadly work. Matter of fact, she wrote this. She said, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of the, their more rebellious members. My goodness, that is so demonically racist that literally she, her agenda was to get a black doctor and black ministers to come in and to kind of quell any argument that might arise when people start saying, why are you wanting to have these abortion factories in black neighborhoods? And so ultimately, I know that people say, well, Margaret Sanger is not around anymore, and that's not the agenda of Planned Parenthood anymore. But let me give you a kingdom principle here, okay? Um, origin determines outcome in the natural. In the natural realm, origin determines outcome. And the origin of Planned Parenthood, the origin from the heart of Margaret Sanger, was to exterminate life, to have unfulfilled sexual gratification without the inconvenience of babies. And she also wanted to make sure that what she considered an underclass of human beings, primarily what she called back then Negroes, would not be allowed to increase their population. So origin determines outcome. It's a, a, a fine. Margaret Sanger is not around anymore, but de demonic root produces demonic fruit. And the demonic root was clear in Planned Parenthood, and the demonic fruit continues still today. Um, I'm going to finish up here because I'm a little bit past my time, but let me just give you this as, as I wrap things up. What, what is a Christian supposed to do? I want you to acknowledge something with me from the Bible. You read through Scripture, and you're going to find out that God has severely judged or completely destroyed every nation that murders its children. Every nation, every people group that murdered its children, God has either severely judged them or completely destroyed them. You've got Egypt in the book of Exodus. Not long after Pharaoh slaughtered the babies, and within 80 years, he slaughtered all of those infant babies around the birth of Moses. And, and within 80 years, the entire nation of Egypt, ancient Egypt, was judged with famine, plagues, and death. Um, of course, that's when Israel left Egypt, but God brought down the, the hammer on Egypt 
And don't think for a second that that was completely independent of the fact that he slaughtered all of those Hebrew male babies. Uh, you've got the Ammonites in the Old Testament, and they, again, we've mentioned their god earlier, Molech. They sacrificed their children to the false god Molech, and God absolutely destroyed them. You've never met an Ammonite. There's no Ammonites in your neighborhood. Why? Because God completely wiped them off the face of the earth. Same thing with the Moabites. They offered their children to the false god Chemosh, and God destroyed them. You, you've, you've not met any um, Moabites. Why? They're gone. What happened? They sacrificed their children to God. They refused to repent, and God destroyed them. Now, friends, here's a jaw-dropper. Old Testament Israel, the covenant people of God, the seed of Abraham, God made a covenant with them, yet when they adopted the pagan practices of child sacrifice in their idolatry, God allowed Israel, ancient Israel, to be invaded, destroyed, and taken captive by foreign invaders. And you find in the writings of the prophets that part of the reason why is because they kept killing their children. That was actually listed as one of the reasons why judgment was coming, because they had caused their children to pass through the fire. And then you've got in the New Testament, listen, remember Herod and his slaughter of the innocents at the time of Jesus' birth and all those wailing uh, moms where their babies were taken from them and killed? That came through, through Herod, who was the propped up leader of Israel. And all of that preceded the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, which would happen within a century of that time. So, friends, let me just ask you a question. Why do we think America will get a free pass? How is it that we think God would judge Egypt and Ammon and Moab and Old Testament Israel and even in New Testament Israel and then look at the United States of America with whom he has no covenant? He he doesn't have a covenant with this nation. And yet we think that this flaming stench of legalized abortion won't inevitably invite the full wrath of God? Do we really believe that? So if God didn't spare his own chosen people, Israel, from judgment, how foolish and how proud you and I might be, or people in the church in America might be, to think that we'll escape. I'm going to say this at the risk of sounding irreverent, but if God doesn't judge America for abortion, he would likely need to apologize to Old Testament Israel because he judged them for it, and he was in a covenant with them. And yet proud American believers, even people that name the name of Jesus, think that God is glossing over this issue of abortion. And we want revival, but we don't want repentance. And so in Psalm 94, and I'll close with this, the question is asked in Psalm 94, verses 16 and 20, who will rise up with me against evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Can wicked rulers be your ally, those who frame injustice by a law? What a verse for us right now. Can we be in an alliance with wicked rulers who frame up this injustice by a law? And God says, who will rise up with me against these evildoers? Who will stand up for me against workers of iniquity? So my Christian friend, I hope you'll consider all that I've shared in this episode of Mavericks and Misfits because I'm going to tell you something. When you stand for the sanctity of life in the midst of a compromised church generation that doesn't necessarily believe what God says about life in the womb, you will be a maverick. You will be a misfit 
Mavericks and Misfit may sound like maybe a cute title to a podcast, but I'm telling you, to be a maverick in this issue is going to come with a price at some point. And you will be a misfit when you become vocal against the accepted policy of murdering infants. Let your voice be heard when their voices cannot, and pray for mercy for the United States of America. Intercede for those who hold government positions. Let's pray that their blind eyes might be opened. God can do that. And then believe this, believe that God expects you in some fashion to stand against abortion as an evil practice. That's what that verse from Psalms 94 was. Who will stand with me against the evildoers? Who'll stand up from, uh, for me against the workers of iniquity? And so I want to say this, every single sin can be covered by the blood of Jesus. And any of you that are listening who have either had an abortion or paid for an abortion or in the past have endorsed the practice of abortion, I want you to press into Jesus Christ if you're under conviction about that. And I want you to know that when you bring your sins to the cross, Jesus' blood cleanses us from all manner of evil. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in guilt. But we do need to live in a holy awe of the God who ordains life. And we need to honor him in all that we think and speak and how we act in this issue of abortion in the United States of America. Don't look for the culture to change the narrative on this. That's not going to happen. If the narrative and the belief system is ever to change in the United States concerning the sanctity of life, it must be the Holy Spirit dripping voice of the church who has repented and said, God forgive us for being compromised on such a clear issue in scripture. We repent of our unbelief and rebellion as your people have mercy on us. Let judgment begin at the house of God first. And then Lord, as we repent, let us go and influence in the culture so that lives of countless millions upon millions of babies can be saved in the future. That's my hope. And today, in the context of repentance and turning to God in this issue of abortion versus sanctity of life, I believe if we will repent, we are that much closer to embracing revival in the church in America. Thank you for listening to today's Mavericks and Misfits podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review Mavericks and Misfits with Jeff Lyle on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps us reach more people and spread the unfiltered message of Jesus. And don't forget you can connect with Jeff's social media links at maverickmisfit.com. We look forward to reconnecting with you on our next episode.